What's good, family? Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Youth Work. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Dr. Baronda Montgomery. She's a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and microbiology and molecular genetics in the Department of Energy Plant Research Laboratory at Michigan State University. So this is my scientist, sister, scholar. Uh, I was really excited to sit down with her particularly because as a scientist, she does a really amazing job of making connections between our caretaking of plants and what should be our caretaking of young people and the folks that we are mentoring. She has this amazing series called Lessons from Plants, uh, where her research, again, links what we should be doing as caretakers of plants to mentoring and talks us through really every single element, context, um, from soil, water, even up to the, the actual caretaker of the plant, whether they're uh, capable of growing things and helping plants to thrive. One of the things she talks about specifically is that when plants in our care don't do well, we never blame the plant. We never look at the plant as if it has a deficit. We always question and actually go through a thorough process as to why that plant is not thriving and what it needs um, to, in, in order to be able to thrive. I respect the work that she's doing so much. There's a lot to be to learn, a lot to be learned from her in terms of this parallel between stewardship of plants and stewardship um, of, of young people and in, in, in our mentoring process. Uh, I, I, I will include in the episode notes um, a lot of her work. Uh, I'll just actually link you to the website, but also some specific pieces of her work that I think are most appropriate for our work um, as folks who engage young people. At the time that we sat down to talk, we were mourning the, the violent death of Ahmaud Aubrey. And, and we talked a little bit about that in the episode. At the time that this episode is being released today, as I release this episode, we are mourning the death of George Floyd and others who have been recently killed um, and attacked at the hands of, 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 of the violence police state and white supremacy. The fact that we have been talking about this over and over and over again is in fact the problem and it's important for us, especially as folks who are going to engage youth, to not only understand this for ourselves, to understand our place in this collective struggle, but to understand how we can best create the conditions for young people to thrive and to continue to, to move us forward in this fight. All black lives matter. All black children matter. This work is long overdue. It's time for us to reimagine. This is Dr. Tori Weeson Cernan, and you're listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, fam? Today, I am interviewing Dr. Baronda Montgomery. She is a professor at Michigan State University in the departments of biochemistry 
and molecular biology and microbiology and molecular genetics. Sis, this is a lot. She is a black woman scientist, which is already a beautiful thing. But one of the really amazing things about her is her scholarship extends beyond biology and into studying mentorship. And this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Montgomery. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to talk with you. I can't even tell you how excited I am. I'm excited too. So I want to just dive in <laughs> to so many things, but I want to start by, you know, I gave a brief introduction. Will you tell the audience a little more about you and about your work? Absolutely. Um, so one of my colleagues describes me as doing all thing plants because he says I have too many titles. Um, but at my core, I'm trained as a biochemist. Um, which really is about asking questions about what kind of language biological organisms use um, to have a sense of who they are, where they are in space, what's going on around them, and then what they should be doing. And so we really ask questions about that, um, primarily with plants um, and um, photosynthetic bacteria. Right? Um, and the commonality between this is that these are organisms that spend their entire life in a particular place. They don't move around. Mm -hmm. So wherever they land, they spend their entire life there. And unlike us as humans, if we're in a place that doesn't feel good or doesn't work with us, sometimes we're able to move right. um, and look for a better place. These organisms have to stay in that place, which means they have to be really aware about what's going on around them and making decisions about what kind of behaviors promote their success and limit damage. Mm. And so really we're interested, my group, we're interested in questions about how organisms know who they are, where they are and what they should be doing. And for me, it was an easy leap um, to move from asking questions about that, um, about plants to also asking questions about the humans that I was working with. And that's kind of the yeah. slow path I took towards asking those kinds of questions, bigger questions about humans as well. That's really amazing. So. How is it being a black woman in STEM? Talk about it a little is, bit about that experience. Yeah, being a black woman in STEM is, as I tell people, some days it's a rhythm, some days it's a mood, some days it is um, a movement. Um, mm. And I think that one of the things that really has helped me um, maintain my positionality as a black woman in STEM is that for me, I didn't know anybody in academia. Most of my family is, um, has worked in business or entrepreneurial types of venues. Mm -hmm. And so what would be looked at as kind of a deficit in terms of walking into academia without the kind of social capital and cultural capital and knowledge for me really became an opportunity. Mm. And so too frequently what happens is people walk into spaces that they don't understand and start to look at the models that are there Right. and say, I have to be like these people. I have to assimilate. I have to figure it out. For me, I thought, since I don't know anybody and I don't know how this is done, I can figure it out for myself. Mm. Um, okay. And so I really started to study the system. And whenever I move into a new system, whether it's professional or personal, my question is, how does this system work? And how do I understand where the places are that I can do the work I have to do? And even when there's work that I must do, the question is, how do I understand the system enough to do the work in ways that still honor my values, even as I'm producing what's required. Yes. Yes. That's, so you, you speak, you know, it's funny. I'm looking, I'm listening to you and I'm looking at you. My mom's a nurse. Oh, it's and okay. <laughs> I don't, I'm not catching everything that you're saying. I'm probably going to have to look up a couple of things post podcast episode, <laughs> <laughs> but you remind me of her and the way that you speak 
um, I think scientists have a certain language and a way of speaking about the about the world. You know that some I of think us. I think that's true. Yeah, I definitely. So I'm I'm just I'm hearing my mom in your voice a little bit. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to, and I told you ahead of time, I wanted to spend a lot of time with your work on mentorship in particular. But definitely this this article that I've read probably about five or six times uh, mm-hmm. called from deficits from deficits to possibilities mentoring lessons from plants on cultivating individual growth through environmental assessment and optimization. Yes, and I think this is a beautiful piece. I mean, it's it's scientifically it's beautiful, but it just says so much about our ability as humans to mentor other folks. And so I want to spend a lot of time here. Tell me a bit about that article. Where did that article come from? First of all, like, how did you decide to take mentoring lessons? How did you, how did you get the idea of taking mentoring lessons from plants? So I think it really came from the ways in which I moved into mentoring work altogether. So I started doing my mentoring work because during the first five years that I was on the tenure track, um, we recruited six black women in departments that I was affiliated with. Now, none of them were working with me, but I was really excited to see six black women in the graduate program um, because these were women that I thought, okay, they'll move towards getting their PhD. And I have hope in the future of having a colleague who yes. looks like me. Yes. And so I had my head down really doing the work that I needed to do to be successful with tenure. And by the time I got tenure, I decided I was going to have a party celebrate my getting tenure and invite these women. And I looked up and they were all gone. Oh, wow. And three of them. So I started asking questions. Where did they go? You know, like what happened? And three of them um, left with a master's degree. They weren't successful getting through the kind of comprehensive uh, check exam. Um, And three of them said, this, this place isn't for me. I'm leaving. And so I asked questions. I started asking questions of the people who were supposed to be mentoring them. I asked questions of those of us who were supposed to be setting a culture of support and said, what went wrong? And the feedback that I got was that those women couldn't make it here. Mm. They couldn't cut it. And for me, I just, that didn't resonate well with my spirit, right? Right. Because I had gotten to know several of them. I knew that they were bright women. uh, they, they had come from different environments, certainly, but they were really bright. But apart from that, the other thing that I knew and one of the things that I said, um, I say things that get myself in trouble sometimes. Um, I said, you're presuming that these women were mediocre mm-hmm. and you said they couldn't get through. And what I know for sure looking around is that I argue with the fact that they're mediocre. But if we want to say that they're mediocre, we know how to get mediocre people through. Yes. I've seen us get countless mediocre white males through yes. this program with a PhD. So I, I argue with that. But in addition, I was talking to a group of plant biologists, uh, people who work on plants. And my first question was, how do I appeal to them? And the first thing I said to them is that when you assume that someone comes into the environment and doesn't do well, you're making an assumption that the environment is perfect and has everything they need to succeed. Right. Right. But when we talk about plants as plant biologists, we know that You can have identical plants, twins for all practical purposes, that end up with different outcomes depending on how we situate them in the environment and whether they have access to all the things that they need. And so even in our homes, we know if we have a plant that's near a window, it might turn towards the window. And that's a sign that the plant's trying to get closer to sunlight, which it needs to make its own food. And so I just started to think about the ways in which humans 
interact with plants, those who study plants, but those of us who just have plants in our home. And generally we recognize that plants either do well or not based upon what they have access to in their environment, Mm -hmm. not so much what their intrinsic properties are. And so, you know, just looking at humans broadly, my mother had beautiful gardens when I was growing up and she would talk to the plants and she would turn them towards the window. She would say, this plant needs some fertilizer. And it just became clear to me that most humans really do have this awe-inspiring relationship with plants where they expect that a plant in their environment should grow. And if it doesn't, they ask questions about what's going on around the plant or they ask questions about their ability to have a green thumb or take care of the plant. It's the last thing that they would say is that the plant couldn't make it here. And so I really just had to think about ways to get into the conversation because when you start to have conversations, particularly around our populations of color, Mm -hmm. people want to default to deficit perspectives. And if you ask them not to do that, they really don't want to go far into the conversation because their biggest fear is that you're about to tell them that they're a racist. <laughs> and so you start to have questions about, did we really attend to these women well? Right. What kinds of things? You know, They said to me, two of them came from a minority serving institution. They couldn't make the transition. All of the standard deficit framing. Right. And when you start to press on that, they start to really feel like she's about to say I'm a racist. And so I realized that entering the conversation from the perspective of humans and plants You have them deep in the conversation and they think, oh, this is a charming conversation. You're right. I love my plants. And then finally, they said, I think she is saying that I'm a plant killer. And I said, yes, unfortunately, (laughs) this is what I'm saying, but we can help you. Yes. And so it really was a way of trying to think about how you get people to enter into a conversation and stay in it long enough to recognize these growth versus deficit perspectives and how we too frequently default to deficit with humans, particularly those from marginalized and minoritized backgrounds. Right. But plants, we expect they should grow. And pets, ooh, don't get me started on people and their pets, right? Listen. They know they should be healthy and happy and whole in their environment. And we'll go broke to make sure that is true. Listen, so. I have two dogs, <laughs> Nina Simone you know I mean. and James Baldwin the dog. And yes. they run the whole home. And yes. if anything happens to them, you best believe Yes. Yes. So you, you understand. Yes, yes. Yes. I completely understand. That is, I mean, I I've never, until I started reading your work and following, following you on Twitter, I had never seen that connection being made. And yes. I know that folks like myself who were trying to get me- the mentoring field to see that we can't operate from a deficit perspective, but also that we keep sort of, um, not sort of, we definitely are, in the way that we mentor, implying that there's something wrong with young people. Yes. Right. Yes. Instead of saying, let's look around at the situation they're in, at the, you know, at all of these environmental factors. Yes. Um, so for me, your work was illuminating and really helped to affirm this idea that we have to be more critical about the way that we do our work. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that really resonated when I was made aware of your work is that you talked about in critical mentoring how even when some people have the right mindset and want to be a mentor and work with young people or work with colleagues, that even then we spend so much time trying to get them to understand how to persist in what I think you said is the toxic air, right, or the polluted water, as opposed to saying, who's going to clean that up? for them. And so, you know, I think also the plant perspective gets us to say there has to be stewardship 
of the environment and not just a fixing of the people. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at the, your section, uh, plant lesson four and mentoring implication four, and you talk about um, when plants aren't growing well, one of the things that we'll do is we'll get help from folks that we know are good at growing plants, right? So we don't just look to ourselves for, oh, I can make it happen, right? Um, And I know one of the things that I'm always talking about is having a community of mentors. Yes. Yes. So can you talk more about that point of of folks being humble enough? (laughs) You know, and I think it's one of the biggest challenges we have is that we exist in societies where, particularly in academia, if as a faculty member, you have trouble getting grant money, people will show up out of the woodworks to help you figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, If you're struggling with teaching, we have a teaching and learning center, but we don't really ask questions about mentoring. And I was really hearkened back to think about, so my mother, as I said, had a green thumb. And when we were growing up, plants would show up on the porch that looked very sad, very sad looking (laughs) plants. But they would show up with a note that says, dear Mrs. Montgomery, can you nurse this plant back to health? And when it's better, call me and I will come and you can tell me what you did. So she would nurse the plant back to health. People would show up and she would say, this was the problem. You know, you need to water it on this schedule. And so as I was looking for inspiration from plants about mentoring, that came to me that we will readily admit I don't have a green thumb. Right. (laughs) Um, And we will sometimes if we're really committed to having plants in our spaces, we will seek out someone who does and say, can you show me how to do this? Right. At the very least. If people don't have a green thumb, we don't buy them plants as gifts. So I have one friend, I've tried to help her. She can't take care of a plant. She gets no plants as a gift, but we won't do that in our spaces. If we see someone continuously doing harm to a young person, we have to say, you don't get to work with any more young people. You have other gifts and skills and this is not it. And so we need you to focus on your gifts and skills unless you're willing to get the help. And unless you're willing, as you said, to be part of a larger network of people, Mm -hmm. and maybe you have a really good skill in this area, but we need you not to try to do other things. Right. That's, I'm telling you, this is all, these are gems. We need (laughs) all of this. So, um, and I don't want to wear this paper out, but I'm I'm still going because there's so much more here. But your last implication where you're talking about when we've done everything we know to do. Yes. Right. Um, and if we still don't improve the growth of the plant, we may say, okay, we're going to sort of reach a decision that we can't do this. Right. Um, but what we don't do is we still don't judge the plant. Absolutely. And I think that point, I just was so insistent on that particular point because I think that we do so much damage to individuals when we've tried to work with them and we failed to help them meet success. Right. And we leave them with the message that they're un- they can't be helped. Mm-hmm. Not that we don't have the skills to help. And, you know, I actually, despite being a mentoring scholar and a dedicated mentor, I've dealt with this on my own, where you can't, even as a, a person who's dedicated to being a mentor mm-hmm. and you hope to be a gifted mentor, it doesn't mean that you're the right mentor for everyone. And I have been in spaces where I've gotten to a place with a student where it's clear that the relationship between us isn't going to work out. And in those instances, I have decided that I have to give them the gift of saying, I didn't figure out how to mentor you. You know, I did everything I knew to do. I tried, but I didn't figure it out. And so your capabilities need to be placed in someone else's hands. 
I would never say you can't make it in a PhD program, which is what we too frequently do if we're mentoring someone. We say, well, I don't know how you're going to ever learn how to do this because I tried and I couldn't teach you. So right. you're not teachable. Yes. As opposed yes. to saying this particular relationship didn't come together well. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I am specialized in ca taking care of desert plants and you happen to be a plant from the, a different region. Right. right. And so I think we have to be willing to give the gift to the person that even if they didn't meet success in our hands, they can somewhere in the universe meet success. And then our commitment becomes, how do I help you find the person or people who can come around you and help you get to the place you want to be? Or perhaps this isn't the path, right? right? Perhaps there's a different path that you need to succeed on. But I think you're right that we too frequently don't give people the gift of grace we instead give them judgment. Right. Right. And then um, this concept of mentoring, mentoring as environmental stewardship. Yes. Yes. Please talk to us more about that. Um, and and yes. I'm, I'm asking you a lot of questions at once, but I mean, it's leading up to this sort of what's happening right now. Absolutely. And so I want to just so get folks part to understand. of my walk and, you know, I'm still in a walk myself in terms of think, figuring out um, where and how we best support mentoring. But par part of my walk, I started focused really heavily on um, undergraduates trying to finish their bachelor degree. Okay. Um, part of the reason I started focusing there is that the path I took as an undergrad was very um, different from the one I started. So I was actually pre-law as an undergrad, I had decided at five years old, I wanted to be a lawyer and stuck with that um, and was pre-law. And even as it became clear as in junior high school, about seventh grade, that I was really good at math and science, I just kind of developed that into, okay, well, I'll do biological patent law. Okay. But it was an undergraduate advisor and mentor who kept saying to me, whenever you get your hands on something and you're doing experiments, you seem to really thrive. So I don't know how you're going to do this law school thing, but you know, if that's what you want to do, that's what we'll do. Right. And so I ultimately took on a research project and had the experience with a good mentor. And so I was really committed to giving undergraduates the opportunity to explore without judgment. And as I did that, I realized, okay, well, they're working with other people who aren't mentoring them well sometimes. So then I need to work with the mentors of the undergrads to get them to be better mentors to support the undergrad. Right. And then I started working with graduate students. And at each, each level, I realized that it's not just this one-on-one -on -one relationship, but mentoring happens in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And if you're not paying attention to the entire ecosystem, someone's not paying attention to that, then mentoring can be carried out as gatekeeping where we're just trying to figure out if I can see enough in you that I'll open the gates up to opportunity. Right. And it became clear to me that most of the things that really matter in terms of having great mentoring cultures are really leadership decisions, mm. whether we have the resources we need to build the mentoring environment and culture, whether we have systems of accountability that say we're doing mentoring in this environment from a growth perspective and not a deficits perspective. Right. If you don't have that at a higher level, you can have good people in an environment doing good mentoring. But if you're going to have a true mentoring culture, you have to look at the entire system. And that means that we need people who aren't keeping the gates, but are stewards of the environment. Right. I've been talking about it lately as we need mentors who aren't gatekeepers, but who are groundskeepers, Ooh. right? They're walking the grounds and not saying, am I going to open the gates and let you in? But my responsibility is to walk the grounds and make sure that the paths people need to walk are clear. 
that if there are barriers, we're removing them. And so that requires stewards who are actually paying attention to the environment Mm -hmm. and whether it's well-established intended so that people can work as opposed to mentors as gatekeepers who are looking at you and saying, nope, you're not showing what we need. I need you to fix yourself and meet this particular bar. Right. So given your perspective on mentoring in terms of environment um, and all of these other aspects that go into the, the growth of a person, is there ever a time to prepare the young people? Um, so not, not from a deficit perspective, but what do you think about preparing young people for mentoring? I think it's absolutely critical. And I, in the past uh, few years or so, I've been doing the work um, that's centered in these plant-based perspectives from both sides. So it's not just preparing the mentors, um, but the last three years I've had the opportunity to work with um, all of our incoming first-year students take a seminar class and they're grouped into those based on a number of things, whether they're transitioning from community college, um, whether they are working students or whatever. And I've had a chance to work with several of those first-year seminar classes to talk to them about how you prepare to be in an environment that's going to have a growth perspective and how you recognize when someone is actually working with you from a fixed mindset and you're able to recognize that for what it is and not internalize it and to try to reach out and and broaden your network. And I think it's important because too frequently students trust uh, mentors or a Mm -hmm. person who is assigned as their mentor. And so if that person is working from them from a deficit perspective, it's easy for them to start to feel that they don't have the capabilities. Um, I think it leads directly to imposter syndrome that you're like, okay, someone sees that I'm not um, capable of this. And so I think preparing them for the different ways in which mentoring happens, recognizing it when it shows up and saying, I can't really trust this person because they are seeing me as a set of deficits. And I know that I have some particular strengths. I think also preparing students to recognize that I think one of the most powerful forms of mentoring is peer mentoring um, and how they set themselves up Mm -hmm. um, in those kinds of uh, networks. So I have a 17 year old son who since he's been probably seven or eight, every year before school starts, he and a group of his friends have to come together and do what I call a strength circle where they speak each other's strengths to each other, because we often don't readily recognize our own strengths, but someone else will. Right. And so I think that the the importance of cultivating peer networks, some of my most powerful support comes from my own, what I call sister peer mentors. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the other ways that it's important to talk with young people about mentoring is to prepare them to recognize good mentoring when they're getting it. And if it's bad mentoring to say, well, wait a minute, Um, you don't, have the right mindset to mentor me. So I, you know, respectfully decline your (laughs) deficit-based perspectives on me. (laughs) Um, As I say all the time, we often undersell our ability to reject things. I will tell people all the time, they'll say, you are X, Y, or Z. And I think about it. I reflect on it. And I say, thank you so much, Dr. Tori, but I reject that. That that is not who I am. Um, And what you have to offer is not what I need. So thank you so very much. Um, But also this, the real importance of them positioning themselves to be engaged in very deep and reciprocal peer mentoring, I think is an important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also just thinking about the power that comes with not only recognizing your strengths, but being able to say, this isn't the mentoring relationship for me. Yes. Right. Because so often we teach young people, oh, you're just so lucky to get a mentor. Yes. 
Yes. Right. So we do not in turn sort of arm them with this ability to know, to affirm themselves and yes. to know like when mentoring isn't working for them. Well, and the word you just mentioned is the one that I was about to come to the affirmation too frequently. We teach them to do what we've done poorly. And that is to outsource our affirmation. Right. And I believe that too frequently we, we ourselves depend upon someone else affirming us and the need for affirmation is real, but who holds power to affirm you lies with you. Yes. And too frequently we give people who don't have our best interest in heart, who don't share our values, the power to affirm us. And one of the things I hold dearly is deciding who gets power to affirm me and recognizing that some spaces is too dangerous to show up not fully affirmed. Oh, yeah. And so in spaces where people are evaluating me, I have to show up ready with some affirmation because otherwise you can hear what they're asking you to do as a call for getting their affirmation. And I'm like, if you're evaluating me, I need to show up affirm because if you tell me I need to do X, Y, or Z, I need to be able to hear that clearly right. and not say, I'm going to do it so that you'll like me. I'm going to do it so that you'll appreciate me. I'm already appreciated and liked. I got to think about whether that thing makes sense for me to do. And so I think this Understanding the power of affirmation is also important in mentoring relationships. And it's important for mentors to affirm separate from if, if I affirm you in this way, then you'll get a good letter. But just to say right. you're a good person and I might have to correct you next week, but this week we're going to focus on what you do well. So that whole balance of strengths, uh, really recognizing and celebrating strengths, I think is important. Yes, Absolutely. So I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about recent events, um, especially yeah. in relationship to your concepts of, of taking care of plants and paralleling that with taking care of people and then the environment, the environmental aspect, right? And, you know, right now on my timeline on a daily basis, um, hearing about the coronavirus Mm -hmm. hearing about how that's disproportionately impacting folks of color and poor folks. Uh, right now I run with a mod um, yeah. is the hashtag is trending on Twitter because folks are, are in solidarity with um, this young man who was killed vigilante style. Yes. Um, while jogging. And so that just makes me think about, you know, your concepts of environmental stewardship of how we take care of plants, not by seeing something wrong with them, but by starting to fix what's around them. Yes. Can you, can you just talk about your, you know, what you're feeling about these events, first of all, and then how this relates to your work? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about it because I've had um, opportunity to be asked about it, but also because of my, where I sit, my positionality, right? So I mentioned earlier, I have a, a teenager, a 17 year old who in my eyes is still my little boy, but when he walks out of the house at, at six, two muscle muscled up and everything, the world sees him as a black man. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think the reality of the fears and dangers that that brings for me, the energy that that requires, um, also in a time where we're dealing with this global pandemic. And I have also been watching the solidarity and support of I'm running with the Modest House. Um, today, a couple of uh, college presidents had, you know, posted their pictures. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that I 
think about frequently and worry about, particularly for our young people, is how they're dealing with the nexus of all of this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I've been having conversations. So my son is a senior in high school. Um, he's missed all of his, as he said, his senior rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I offered to have a prom on the deck so I could be prom queen and he declined, <laughs> you know. But in all seriousness, I think about young people like him who are dealing with um, everything that's come related to the coronavirus, mm-hmm. missing out on rituals that you thought, not knowing if he's going to college in person in the fall or if he's going to be stuck at home on Zoom college with his mom. Right. Um, but then he's also today, he said to me, you know, you've been hearing about what happened to Ahmad Aubrey. I said, I have. How do you want to talk about it? Um, and then you just think about how some of the people that we're mentoring and working with show up dealing with all of these things, the intersection of all of their identities. And too frequently we acknowledge them. I don't want to be dismissive of people's actions. We we acknowledge them at a surface level. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. week and the next week, we'll have lots of hashtags and people who are standing in solidarity with the mod. And then next week, in some ways, we'll go on to some other kind of news. But as a mother of a Black son, living in a house with someone, we'll still be dealing with these issues. Mm -hmm. And I think too frequently, part of the thing that I'm thinking about, really, in terms of the next things I want to focus on for mentoring, are how we really understand that if we do environmental stewardship right, there's not a one-size-fit-all. Because there have been days where, a couple of years ago, there was a different um, killing of a a black male. And I sat in my office unable to work, Mm -hmm. but my colleague next door might've been able to go on. And so I think that we have to really think about the deep ways in which everyone who's in a particular environment, we have to have stewardship of any environment, but too frequently we we want a one size fits all mentoring protocol that will take care of everyone. And that's just not the way it works. And even when people look like they've gotten to some level of success, you don't know how a particular event or an ongoing crisis is really uh, impacting people's ability. And I think too frequently we look at it from the perspective it's impacting their ability to move and progress as an individual. But one of the things that I think about is that when you have someone who's dealing with the news of an Aubrey Ahmad, who's dealing with the fallout of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago, my aunt was in the hospital. Thank goodness she recovered. But when you're dealing with all of these things, it's not just that it distracts me from my work. It distracts me from giving my contributions to the community. Mm, Yes. And until we get focused on that part of it and recognize that if we don't take care of people, we don't get their contributions to community. And I want us all to be successful as individuals, but I also think about, I always think about self and self as community. And I think too frequently we don't think about the self as a community part and that if you can't show up, it's affecting you and it's affecting your nuclear family, but it's also affecting the community because we need your good work. We need your contributions. And so how do we think around how mentoring has to not just focus on whether we're getting individuals to be successful based on some external markers, but whether we're positioning people to contribute to the care and ongoing contributions of a community. Right. And that's important. I hear a lot of mentoring programs that when you talk about that, it reminds me of mentoring programs and their metrics. Oh yes. Right. How many folks are matched? How long was the match? I rarely hear how deep was the match? How effective was the match? You know, right. Um, You know, what 
what did both mentor and protege receive as a result of the match? Absolutely. So those metrics, they do become limiting, but then, you know, the other people, the other question that people raise, and you talked about grants a little bit earlier, the other question that people raise is, well, if I don't have those metrics, then ABC funder is not going to fund me. Yes. Yes. It's a catch 22, you know, and it's a catch 22. I'm thinking about it because that's how I actually started writing about mentoring is that I was originally doing a lot of good mentoring work. And one of my mentors, a black woman pulled me to the side and I love black women mentors because she literally said to me, look, little girl, you can't, (laughs) she said, you can't keep running around here doing all this mentoring service. Um, Mm -hmm. it, It won't get you where you need to be in terms of longevity in the academy. And so, you know, we did have a conversation about what counts in the academy. Right. And of the things that count, which are least painful for you, you know? And so for me, writing, I love to write. I write all the time. I'm really a writer stuck in a professor job, right? It's like, I got to have something to write about. And so writing for me was an easy way to say, I'm doing this work. You need a metric. So here's your metric. Right. And I think the one thing that I had to do, because I don't do well just producing metrics for the sake of metrics, I had to ask myself, how does the producing of that metric open a larger platform or open a longer time in a space. And so I think that even as getting access to grant dollars becomes important for you to do certain kind of work, I encourage people to say, still, even as I take this time to get this grant, because at this time I don't have to be one-on-one with the students, how am I clear about how it's opening up a platform that I can then put these young people on Or how is it opening up a longer kind of commitment that I'll have? And so I think the reality is we have to have metrics. But even saying that, I believe in using the system we have now as we transform it. I believe in transformation. Mm -hmm. And as much as there are days where I'm in the burn it all down and rebuild it camp, the reality is we have to exist in systems that are currently in place while we try to make them what they need to be. And so my question always becomes, which metrics can I reach for without without compromising my values because I see that they're opening up paths and work and resources for the people that I care about the most. Right. In terms of, of strategies, because I'm working with, with a lot of practitioners and I think a lot of practitioners will be listening to this podcast. What are some strategies for teachers, for mentors um, that you can offer that would help them make their work more critical? Well, you know, part, I'm a, I'm a wordsmith. So when I think about critical, I think about critical, critical from the perspective of, um, I think of critical as embedded in truth, Mm. um, deeply embedded in truth and values. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from that perspective, um, I think that some things that people can do are to be clear about who they're serving and making sure that they're making space for those people. And I think that one of the things we do too frequently, so one of my roles at the university for the past few years has been in faculty development. So we work with academic staff and faculty. And it's always amazing to me how the administrators have a conversation, a plan, and we're moving forward. And I say, has anybody talked to the people who this workshop is for? You know, whether it's what they want or what they need. And so I think one of the first things we have to do is to be in ongoing relationship with the people we intend to serve 
and ask them what it is they want to do, what it is they want to accomplish, what, what are the points of pain they're finding and being able to move forward, and then ask how those of us who are, who are in positions that have some kind of um, access to resources or have the ear of people, right. how then can we use our positions to make space for the people we want to serve to move in the ways that they want? And how can we show up with them at the table? Um, as opposed to just showing up. So I will often ask, I will, well, I don't often ask. I often say, I'm going to bring someone with me. And they say, well, that's not, I say, okay, well, who do I ask? You know, Yes. but I think too frequently, and I, that's what I really appreciated about my understanding of your work is that you're working with and through youth, not just for them, right? right? And certainly you're working for them, but you're working with them and through them. And sometimes that means that you negotiate getting a platform and a space. And then when you show up, you sit in the back of the room and say, and so I always say to people that I think the best mentors and leaders that when their work is done and it's done well, sometimes you will never know they were there because the people who they facilitated to be in a space and place Mm -hmm. take over and run it. My satisfaction is knowing the role I play, but I think too frequently we think that it means we have to be at the front and we have a beautiful PowerPoint with pictures of the students. And I'm like, let the students talk. And that's the thing I've learned. I keep thinking our students here at Michigan State University have been at the forefront of understanding where we have gone wrong at an, as an institution. Mm-hmm. And they write beautiful op-eds about it, this, this our newspaper. And I was like, is anybody saying maybe we should not just read their papers later, but let them leave because mm-hmm. we're a university to educate students. And yet they're saying, you're not hearing what I need. Right. Yes. How do you think your work, and, and I know you've been, we've been talking about it, but mm-hmm. explicitly, how do you think your work is helping to reimagine youth work? Well, I would tell you what I hope it's doing because I I have learned that I often think I know. And then when someone says, Baronda said, and I'm like, no, that's (laughs) clearly not what I said. (laughs) But what I hope that my work is doing is one thing, challenging the notion that supporting people from a growth perspective is hard because nearly every human being that I've seen with the plant has the capacity to expect organisms to grow and do well, and if not, to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. So I I hope that one of the biggest things that I'm doing is challenging the notion that there's a few people who can do this work. The truth is, if we want to do it and we set our systems up, Mm -hmm. we will do it. Um, And I hope the other thing that I'm doing is to really, as I've said, and to provide space, particularly in the work that I've been trying to move in the last few years, to say that We need people to exceed, yes, because as individuals, we need success, but also if we stop focusing on individual success and competition, but focus on community and focus on how we either succeed or not as a community. And even when we don't believe it, it's true. So the main reason we are on stay at home orders right now is because we didn't believe we were a global community and we, (laughs) we thought it'll just stay over there. And even when we don't acknowledge it, we are. And if you don't acknowledge it, the universe has to teach you lessons about it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I really also hope that my work does is to say that if we stop looking only at ourselves and look at how the universe works, 
will understand our place in it and can really get in line and be in relationship with all of the beings that are on this planet. And I like to start first with youth because they'll be the ones who are here. Right. Hopefully if we don't ruin the planet before, you know, for them before that part, (laughs) (laughs) that part. And what you're saying is, is hitting home for me right now to this, you know, this morning I was talking to my sister and she was letting us know, you know, mom's, my mom's a nurse and she's, my mom's been a nurse for my entire life. Um, and she was saying, Hey, you know, mom's unit is being turned into a unit to rule out whether people have COVID or not. So she's going to be coming, um, in direct contact with folks. And so, you know, I posted about it knowing that, you know, folks look at my social media and just hoping you know, that, that folks would see like this has a direct impact on someone that you, that you say you care about. Right. Yeah. Um, and I got offered a lot of prayers. Um, and my response was, you know, your prayers are great, but staying at home is better. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because recognizing that you have the power to back up that prayer by keeping yourself healthy and safe or not infecting other people is a direct, it's going to directly link to keeping my mother yeah. safe. Yeah. Um, so again, back to the, this, this environment, back to the connectedness that you speak about. Uh, these things are particularly important. And yes, starting with young people, because we model for them. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And so they don't see us taking these things seriously. They think, you know, smart kids for the most part, because I hear a lot of young people say y'all crazy, you know, so luckily our young people are are, are figuring out <laughs> that we don't yeah. have all the answers, you know, but, but we're still showing them, you know, a sort of carelessness. Right? Absolutely. Well, and one of the things I was thinking about as you were you were talking is that that's one of the other things between um, biological organisms like plants. Um, and when I look at children or youth, we actually need to focus on them. They have a lot of things right because they haven't yet unlearned them. Right. right? Yeah. And so I said, we actually need to listen to the youth because they still have all of the natural and innate wisdom that's supposed to be about being a human. And we haven't really you know, beat it out of them yet, or we haven't uh, tuned it out of them by saying, if you do this, you'll get success if you do this. And so they have so much wisdom to offer. And it's one of the things that's often kind of just remarkable to me when I am just quietly listening in on my son and his friends are how they have, they still have so much wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the other reasons we need to make space for them is that so that we can learn from their wisdom. And, you know, in my turning to plants to really understand, because for, you know, I'm a biochemist, I've been studying them and teasing them apart. But a number of years ago, I thought, okay, I'm learning what I can about them. What can I learn from them? And that took me to the work of a lot of indigenous scholars around the globe. And there is this idea that, these organisms have been here for a long time. We have things to learn from them. Right. And I think young people have innate wisdom and we need to quit positioning them that I as the mentor or leader or adult, I'm here to teach you all of my wisdom that I have gained from experience. Right. What I've learned is that wisdom is gained from experience. Yes, sometimes, but it's also innate. And too frequently, we lose a lot of our innate wisdom as we replace it with our understanding of our experience. And so we really have to say we have shared wisdom. And that these are relationships. And I'm asking you, as I offer you my experience wisdom, 
for you to call me back to the innate wisdom that I came into the universe with, but have lost. And I really appreciate if you get in the right relationship with young people, they will remind you that's Miss Veranda. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I knew that at one point. Right. And I have lost that understanding and I appreciate. But that really goes to this point that I also hope people learn from my work is the importance of reciprocity and not just being in the universe asking what does the universe have for me? But asking then, what do I have to offer in exchange for all the universe has given me? And you can learn that beautifully in human relationships or watching humans with other organisms. But I think too frequently, because we exist, particularly in the United States, in this individual success kind of mindset, Mm -hmm. we forget the importance of reciprocity. Yes, absolutely. So my my closing question for you, and I, I ask this question of each of my guests is mm. in your freedom dream, mm. what does the future of youth work look like? First of all, can I just sit for a second with the idea of having a freedom dream? Yes, absolutely. So I, I, um, I have this slide that I end a lot of my talks with that's titled, If I Rule the World. That's the title okay, of the slide. Okay, nice. I see you. And in some ways, it is a freedom dream. One of my dreams is that, particularly around youth, that we really get out of this idea. Pretty much everything we talk about is how we get them through a pipeline, whether it's through a community pipeline or education pipeline. And I really, my dream for youth is that we enter into reciprocal relationship with them and understand our place as their mentors and advocates but also as our place from learning from them. And that we really say that if I'm going to take on a role as a mentor, that I have to do that as a mentor advocate and not just ask how do I get them to figure out how to fit into a particular space, but how do I get in front of them and clear out the pipeline? not just try to help them navigate it and force themselves through it. And I think, you know, I always talk about the fact that we do a big disservice. We would never in our homes, if our pipes were running slow, say, let me just force more water through here and then I'll get some out the other side. We know that that would be catastrophic. And so my real freedom dream is that we enter into communities that we understand that there's a lot of work we have to do Mm -hmm. to help each other see the way forward. And sometimes that means that some of us have to get our hands dirty and say, I see an obstacle in front of you and I'm going ahead because the work that I know you have to do is so important that I have to clear the path for you. Not that I have to get credit for helping you excel, but I have to clear the path for you. And that means I might have to get dirty and do some hard work. But it means that your work is so important to me that I'm willing to do that. Yes, that is everything. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. Oh, thank you. It was, I told you, I spoke this into the universe. I said, I'm going to talk with Dr. Tori one of these days. I don't know when and I don't know how. And here we are. Here we are. This has been beautiful. Y'all, we have been listening to Dr. Baronda Montgomery. She's a writer, a researcher, a scholar who pursues a common theme of understanding how individuals perceive, respond to, and are impacted by the environments in which they exist. She does all of this as a scientist who connects this to mentoring, um, the, the context of effective mentoring and leadership of individuals and the role of innovative leaders in supporting success. She has dropped a lot of gems here. I will make sure that in the episode notes, there are links to her website and the articles that we did mention. 
um, because y'all definitely need to read these articles. We will see y'all again in two more weeks. In the meantime, keep doing the good work.